Welcome and thank you for joining us in season three of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hey, Joel. Howdy, Rabbi Eric. How are you? I'm okay. It's good to be with you this afternoon. And metaphorically speaking. Right. Through a screen and headphones and microphones. Sim- similar to Moses seeing God through the cleft of a mountain. <laughs> Just don't don't try to look at my backside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. If y'all don't get that joke, you need to read your Bible a little the more. The Bible? <laughs> Oh, it's fu- it's funny. I, I'm doing a, an adult ed. Uh, I, I'm already planning my adult ed theme for next year. We do it uh, twice a week or twice a month on Thursday mornings. And I try to pick a general theme. This year's was liturgy, learning our liturgy. Well, you know, I find that I quote from books all the time or reference books. And I always talk about like, this is a book every Jew should read. You should read this book. So finally, I'm kind of putting my money where my mouth is in the uh, adult education classes, six Jewish books, six books every Jew should read. And then in parentheses, other than the Torah. (laughs) Nice. Well, it's a scroll anyway, so that's all right. Exactly. And of course, that can be interpreted as, well, of course, you should read the Torah, but besides that, or maybe, no, six books other than the Torah. <laughs> if you'll trust these six, you'll know what the Torah says and means. Yeah, to a large degree. Um, so that's Thursday mornings if anyone wants to move to Athens and join the congregation. Um, but for now, Joel, uh, let's talk real. <laughs> let's talk real. Well, it's the day, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, May 25th, and uh, that is the day after the horrific shooting in Texas yesterday that I think uh, at this point the official count is 21 dead. And, you know, everyone has their quote-unquote hot take on this. Everyone is sad. Everyone's thinking, everyone who's a parent thinks about, you know, the, the... absolute god forbid you know what if this happened in my in our school situation and i am just nothing you know the the wheel of uh non-change it is unbelievable to me and i was talking with a friend uh earlier this morning on the phone and he said this is a joke, but then I wrote it down, and I think it's quite frankly, you know, it's sermon fodder, but also discussion fodder, that we have too much freedom in this country. And I think that the part of the problem with the gun control argument isn't about guns per se, it's about personal freedom. The tension that exists between personal freedom and communal responsibility. And we are way too far on the extreme of personal freedom. I'm an American, damn it. You can't take away my freedom. You know, that kind of stuff. And I really wish that people would take what I know to be uh, super important and uh 
powerful in both of our religious traditions, namely the idea of we are responsible for one another and your goodwill is tied up with my goodwill. And if, the, it, it, and if you have the image of God inside of you, if that is something that we take seriously, then that needs to be protected even if you're different than me, even if you look differently than me. And gosh, too much freedom. So that's really, I I think that's my topic today. Not the guns specifically, because I think quite frankly, um, you know, we've talked about that before. And sadly, we're probably going to talk about it again. But, But I don't know. I've been thinking about it in terms of that tension and Wanted to see uh, what were your thoughts are on this, Joel. Yeah, I, I we have a weekly prayer devotional um, email that goes out with our prayer list for the whole congregation, and it extends to the community and to the world. So today I wrote, you know, my the title of my prayer devotional was "Thoughts and Prayers." Dot 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 again, and and it expressed my exhaustion with people individually offering their thoughts and prayers, but corporately not coming together to do something as a result of those prayers, with the the point being that your individual prayer is not an end in of itself. It is a an opening of your personal, individual ways, thoughts, feelings about something to God. And asking God to enter you individually, personally, and overwrite and overrule your personal, individual expectations and assumptions so that you begin to do something in the world that makes this community, whether it's a congregation or a country, look a little more like God's imagined garden or kingdom, or the forever place that we imagine God is recreating even now. And, and I am sick. I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I think it is breaking the third commandment to say I'm going to pray to God and then not to let that prayer change you in any way where you just repeat the same communal catastrophe and you honor your individual preference on some issue, gun control, whatever, and and not bend... Abortion. Yes, and not bend yourself to the communal. I think that is a violation of using God's name in vain. Like that... That's kind of what it means. Oh, I'm going to pray to God, but I'm not going to let God change anything in me. That personal privilege and freedom as opposed to bending to the community, it's costing us up, down, left, right, north, south, east, west in this country right now. Wow. Yeah, I'd never thought about the third commandment in that way before, but I mean, of of course I agree with you, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, man. And of course, you know, religion organized religion by its definition definition is communal that we figure out our 
but both from kind of a a politics standpoint and a theology standpoint. We have we have to figure out bylaws. We have to figure out hiring practices, expectations. That is done communally. And sure, I mean, I mean, there's a joke in Judaism: two Jews, three opinions. I mean, we are well aware of individual thought and tensions that exist. But if we don't have some commonality of belief, then we're not a religion. So you know, as a ridiculous example, we all use the Torah as our central book. We're, no one's disagreeing whether or not the Torah is the central book. We disagree about who wrote the Torah. We disagree about what rules we should follow, what rules shouldn't we follow. Well, Leviticus actually doesn't say this. It says this, and we're meant to understand it as this. Those are all arguments. But th there's a fundamental understanding of what binds us together. And that is so anathema to the American, quote-unquote, individual freedom idea. And I think it's a beautiful tension when people take it seriously and when we each try to walk that delicate balance. But if you only care about your individual freedoms, man, that is tragic and dangerous. Yeah, people get shot because my individual right to, to own and bear arms, even though I'm not part of a well-regulated militia, uh, right? Uh, you can just take those well-regulated arms that aren't very well-regulated, and you can do great harm to others in your community because you have personal freedom and privilege to do so, even right to do so. I, I, of course. The Constitution is intended to protect individual rights. The threat to an individual right is usually not another individual. The threat to, you, to individual rights is usually some monarch or overlord or system or structure above us. The reason we protected individual rights was from our government, which— And that goes back to our free speech conversation a few weeks ago. Absolutely. Yes, and I, I am all on board with recognizing that no government should have the power to remove individual rights— but the individual rights that are protected are for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, not for death and destruction and pursuit of vengeance. We are now protecting the rights of individuals to destroy the very community that is intended to protect true rights. And we are choosing false rights, idle rights, as opposed to true rights in our communal protections. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if it's going to take lawmakers, if, if it's going to have to literally hit home for them until they, they can see the parallel between, you know, victims' humanity and their humanity or changing hearts and minds. But I could tell you what it's not going to take. It's what you said. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers, which, of course, is somewhat ironic coming from two clergy people. Like we're saying, you know, we're, we're kind of bemoaning and critiquing, strongly critiquing this idea of thoughts and prayers. But that's but that's what you said is right on. The, the saying of the prayer is, is nothing. It's the meaning of the prayer and the action of the prayer. And, and you know, you, you quote without knowing it, you quoted Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, which is namely to say that, you know, the best kind of prayer is a mirror back into us, 
that the, the prayer energizes our soul and our body to kind of then activate the prayer. Yeah. Ugh, infuriating. Infuriating. What you got for us this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, before we jump there, one more thing. Uh, I, yeah, I'm sorry. That's my fault. I moved the... I, I, yeah. I'm okay. Uh, use, your, use your individual freedom, Joel. Yeah, <laughs> I'll edit. <laughs> I'll use my corporate editing power. Uh, there we go. To, I'm okay with thoughts and prayers, and I think thoughts and prayers are the right starting point. I just don't think they can be used as an excuse to be an ending point. Like, they, please do offer thoughts and prayers in this moment, but if you don't change your action as a result of that thought and prayer, your thought and prayer was nothing. Yeah, no, that that is well said, and I'm glad you said that because, of course, I, I I was in a meeting earlier this morning with some leaders of the congregation, and before the meeting, we were just talking. And it's like, of course, I'm going to talk about this on Friday night, and I'm probably going to open the service with a prayer. So yes, uh, I mean that's what we do, but it's not. But that, yeah, I, you described it per- perfectly. I don't need to echo it. <laughs> oh man, I'll just say Amen. Okay, turning the page. Turn it. All right. I, there's a, a a writer. She's an opinion writer. Um, she's, I think, an Episcopalian priest, um, Tish Harrison Warren. Um, and she sometimes writes opinion columns about faith and religion and in the public or private sphere. And she wrote an opinion piece recently um, that you can find in New York Times Opinion about uh, American jobs are now filling the space that faith used to fill in us. And her argument is that um, she's done some research and she's done some conversations with people, and she's finding that people now talk about their jobs with words like calling. They now find their purpose in their job. Their community is their coworkers. They're some of the folks who really become heavy workaholics and spend 50, 60, 70 hours end up skipping meals or having meals at work instead of beyond work with their work friends and colleagues instead of other places. And their sense of self, their sense of identity, their sense of purpose, the change that they want to see or make in the world, they limit it to the scope of their work. Uh, it's, if you're a software developer, well, my app is going to change the world. If you are a designer of some new product or version of a product, this product is going to change the world. Or if you're launching a new restaurant or service, it's going to change our community for the better. And everything about our work is becoming our religious community, our faith, our identity. And and she was saying, you know, the recent trends over the past 15, 20 years toward none is not just a rejection of what religion and faith communities have been, but a transference of that style of communal need to work. Uh, and, and And I thought, oh my gosh, is that true? So I just wanted to put that on the table and see what your first impression is. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there are those for whom 
work has always filled a kind of void. Um, you know, we use the word workaholic. And unfortunately, I think in America, it's kind of like a badge of honor, right? That, you know, when you're hiring someone, you, not you, but, you know, one typically wants someone that's going to work the long hours and make the quote unquote sacrifices. And um, I see a, a difference, certainly in clergy, between our generation and the generation before us. I mean, the generation before us, I know rabbis who kind of were proud. I never took a day off. I had, you know, all of these things, or I didn't take vacation. And first of all, you know, that, I don't think that makes you a better rabbi. And it also, I, and I, I take this very seriously, you know, in terms of clergy, one of the things we're doing is, yes, we are working. We definitely have a job that we're compensated and many of us are compensated well for. And I fully acknowledge that. But also we are modeling or trying to model uh, sacred behaviors. And I don't like calling it work-life balance. I just call, call it balance. Because I don't think there's work and then there's life because I can love my work and, you know, uh, but, um, you know, Judaism has a lot to say about being present for your family, being present for yourself. And I would imagine Christianity is similar. And, uh, you know, to me, there are many higher values than, quote unquote, not taking a day off, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know, that, that doesn't necessarily speak to, is work replacing religion? Um, but that's, those, are, those are my first thoughts after what you said. Yeah, she's call, she calls it a weird phrase, like the theocracy of work. And mm. yeah, and it's like democracy and theology both built into that space. But she's saying it's, we, we, instead of going to faith communities or civic organizations or groups where diverse people will hash out questions of moral value or, you know, the tough stuff, we're just going to work. And everybody there is paid to accomplish a similar task. And, and so that effort is replacing the innate desire in us to make the world a better place. We just substitute that innate desire that's built into all of us. Maybe it's the spark of God. Uh, we, we're displacing that with the uh, paid responsibility to make our app or product or service better, to make our company more profitable. Uh, and she describes in there one, one gal who just, she immersed herself in her job. She really looked forward to the day when the big, the big uh, reveal would happen and her company would get bought out. And she would finally be set free from all of her worries and cares. And the religious language of this employee, a mat working hard today for that future day when all her cares are gone and everything is taken care of, it started to sound like sad Christian heaven style <laughs> hope. Mm. And and then the the merger fell through. And this person said, oh, my gosh, my heart was broken. I didn't know what to do anymore. It felt like a death of self. Who am I? What do I value? Um, I, I gave everything to going to work, and then it was gone. It, and you could sense in this person that she was talking about, she had displaced the common human effort to be 
at one with each other and with our creation and to do beautiful things together that aren't for profit, but that are for wholeness. She had replaced that with the works mentality of doing something for profit, for a, a big cash out on the backside. And and at the same time, she was getting all this, the fake sense of value and identity while doing it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just finished uh, We Crashed on Apple TV. I don't know if you know that show. So it's a, it's a drama starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway as um, the founder, Jared Leto plays the founder of WeWork, which was a, a shared space company that at one point had a valuation of $47 billion and then it completely went down the toilet. And I, I mean, there, there's lots of similarities in this of people kind of joining the quote-unquote cults of a job and, you know, everything is there, life and friendship, even romance, promise of raises and growth and spirit, not only financial fulfillment, but spiritual fulfillment. And oftentimes it's, it's hollow, even if, the, even if the, uh, the finances are there, even if the company does get bought out, then what? What's the next step? And I, I, I think one of the things you and I try to teach is, yes, physical nourishment of all kinds in terms of you know, money and resources, a roof over our hands, that is important and it's even something to strive for, but it's not the only thing to strive for. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, of course, we could get into discussions of, well, what do you do with your wealth then? But I, I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying that even with wealth, if you don't have a spiritual outlook that is healthy uh, to go along with kind of the physical needs outlook, uh, it, it's kind of like uh, an amputated limb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she also makes the case that it, it might be a contributor to why our democracy is at risk, kind of from two perspectives. From one perspective, those who worship their work begin making political slash communal decisions that best uh. support their work as opposed to the whole. Or another way it destroys democracy is those who worship their work get so involved in the, the microcosm of their work, they forget to be engaged and aware and informed about the macrocosm of their country. And so you're either manipulating the country slash democracy to benefit your microcosm, or you're blinded by your microcosm and therefore not involved and aware of the macro. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, it looks like the author, um, I, I'm, I'm at this page of the New York Times article, that uh, there, there is a, a, another book, Work, Pray, Code, where this theme was covered, if, if listeners want to kind of look more into that. I have not heard of that book until now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. Um, you know, the other interesting thing, of course, is, you know, both of us, would strongly urge people, of course, to have jobs that are meaningful. Like you should have a job that means something to you, whatever that is. It, it doesn't matter. Um, but meaningful is very different than all-encompassing. You know, as I like to sometimes joke, everything in moderation, including moderation, that you know your your job should be fulfilling, your your friendships should be fulfilling, your hobbies, but. Uh, any of them taken to an extreme is unhealthy. And uh, I think some people, notably in America, uh, 
ha- unfortunately fall into that. And and again, culturally, we reward that to a degree. Mm-hmm. And even though we don't like work, it's a an adult topic. But I wonder if we're doing this to our kids with stuff like school slash GPA slash awards. You know, it's graduation time, and so you're seeing all the pictures of kids with extra stoles and extra cords hanging around their neck versus kids without. And I wonder if we're judging them based off that identity or if a kid only got those awards or stoles because they were so immersed into that and felt like their identity was in that. What did they lose by giving so much to that and not being well-rounded? Or soccer teams and lacrosse teams and field hockey teams and and all these other sports endeavors are do we so immerse or pressure our kid into having a a team identity that is their sport mm. or their club that they forget to be the wider purposed uh, well-rounded individual that also participates in the life of the wider community their faith community their family community in, in ways beyond just being on the best soccer team or the best club team for their particular sport exactly Exactly. It's idolatry. It's what, that's all it is, right? We we begin to idolize the smaller subset community that we're in tune with and that we match with as opposed to trying to stay connected to the wider God community, which is all creation, really. Yep. Well, I was going to ask, what does that mean for us whose jobs are religion? Are we in the clear or, or no? We're just as much at risk. I, as you said, oh. right, I've seen so many clergy who are major workaholics and who pride themselves on that. Um, and I've gotten sucked in where I thought, okay, this season I've really got to go, go, go. And if, I, if we'll just get through this six months, this year and a half, right? And then you blink and you're working 14, 15 blocks a week. Um, I, I probably said it before, but I, I try to think of time in blocks. Uh, three blocks yep. per day, seven days a week, 21 blocks. How many do I give to church slash world? And and if I'm ever giving more than 11, 12, 13, I'm probably out of balance. So, But there have been seasons where I could easily measure 14, 15, 16 blocks for church. And, and those were moments of shame and confession, really, um, where I had to pull my own leash <laughs> and sit back down. Yep. Yeah, and that's the thing is no one – is ever and, and I don't mean this disparagingly of our congregants or, or any boss, but it is a rare moment where someone says, you know what, you you've been working too hard. Go take tomorrow off. I mean that they, like <laughs> we we need to model that for others. Mm-hmm. Especially in a nonprofit religious world where, you know, people you know, very few people see the breadth of things we do or or you know the number are aware of, for example, how many hospital visits we might do or how many phone calls we might have in a day or, you know, how many strategic emails we're sending or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, we have to make those decisions for ourselves. Yeah, it's it's strange sometimes. Like I, I remember I, being in the corporate world, the key number of projects slash customers slash monthly, weekly reports, meetings that I had to manage. And, and I could always find time in that regular system to do those basics plus the biggies. And I could give 
60, 30, 10% of my extra time to the top three priorities. Um, it's hard to explain to people, but the calling as clergy is is the most interrupted I've ever felt in a job where you never know what the next email, phone call, text issue is going to be. They never stop coming in, demanding your attention. A little thing can come with great volume, and a big important thing can come with a quiet little whisper, and the ability to sort through all of it and do all the essential and prioritize the important, it's really hard. And I struggle with that as clergy still. And I don't have a Oh yeah. I don't have any shortcuts to do it well. Well, I think the integrity comes from from it being a struggle. If it was too easy, then you're doing something then we're doing something wrong. <laughs> right. Every, right. Every shortcut tool another clergy has given me, I've always instantly found the exception to it. Yeah, but what about yeah, when course. a teenager shows up in tears yeah, at yeah. a board meeting? Like, I really like that expression. I'm going to use it. Uh, where you know, things that aren't necessarily hugely important come in volume, but something that is comes very quietly. Yeah, very well said. All right. I was going to ask about Xbox and stuff, but dude, we need to play something sometime. I did download that co-op game. We should have it done it. All right. Yeah, let's do it. In five years, I'll have some free time. 25 years. Thank you for joining us on the Religion podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. <laughs>